John chapter 5, verses 16, all the way to the end of the chapter. They judged, judged Jesus to their loss. I want to show you an image of a finger pointing. Because that's an image we need to get in our head, especially as we look at these particular Jewish leaders that are critical of Jesus. He's going to force them to kind of have this, maybe not this particular image, but he's going to have them think in a way that they should think. Because when you, when you tend to point your finger at somebody else, uh, you, you probably would do better to self-evaluate long before you do that. And that's something that Jesus is going to try to get the religious leaders to do. Last week, I want to look at this uh, title. You'll remember the title of the message was Controversy, Healing, and the Ingrate. Those of you who weren't here for that, uh, the message is online. You could go back if you want, or you could just read the text yourself. But essentially what we have, and it's interesting because I spoke to an individual who had studied this over and over and over again for years this past week, and they had never noticed how the person who was healed was so self-centered and not grateful. That's why I call him the ingrate. If you remember, he was healed after being a paralytic for 38 years. Jesus healed him. The man had no faith. And Jesus healed him. The Pharisees and other religious leaders, probably the Sadducees as well, said, you're not supposed to pick up your mat and walk like that. Well, the guy who healed me told me to do it. Who told you? Who was that guy? I don't know. He didn't know who Jesus was, so he had no faith. Yet later, Jesus found him and said, hey, see, you're doing well. The guy felt good. Stop sinning so nothing worse will happen to you. And instead of saying, oh my goodness, I meant to say thank you. I'm glad to know who you are. Instead, he decided to go to the religious leaders who were very angry at Jesus for telling him to pick up his mat and walk. And he said, there's the guy who did it. That's the guy. So he got the religious leaders. He helped them to attack Jesus. What an ingrate. I wanted to give that to you because I dipped into our text today a little bit. And I want to read that again to you this week. You'll see, we'll pick up in John chapter 5, starting with verse 15, which we went over a little bit last week. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. So he's equating himself with the Father, God the Father. He's equating himself to God, and they are very upset about it. They were already upset because he's working on the Sabbath, and now he is calling himself deity. Wow, does that feel holy or what? There's like a bell, <laughs> church bells going off right now. Yeah. So we'll pick up with the next verse, verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, 
but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You'll notice that John does this throughout the text today, especially. He gives us these explanations. It's more indicative of what we see in Mark's gospel. Mark keeps answering these questions because, and he wants us to look for the answers with ending with because. And John today is looking a whole lot like the gospel of Mark, and he's explaining why Jesus is doing what he's doing and why the Pharisees are upset. We don't have a lot of time to pull in commentary. We don't have a lot of time to pull in even other passages of which we could allude, but we don't have time this morning because there's a lot to cover. So I do want to give you an analogy that I think is important for us to have in our minds as well. And that is of how we choose to see things. I want to show you an image of a person. You'll see this come up. It looks like a a silhouette of a woman's head profile. And if we'll put a lens in front of her, like you go to the eye doctor and you have all those lenses, they keep flipping. How about this? Is this better? Is that better? And you want to say, I don't know. Can you do it again? But you're afraid because you feel like you're not as fast as everybody else. But anyway, we've put a lens in front of her eye. And I don't know if you can tell it's green. If you're colorblind, you're just going to have to trust me. It's green. So if you, if we can show that she's has a perspective through this lens, everything she sees is green. Does that make sense? Now I want you to watch as a ball comes into play here. What color is that, do you see? It was pink, but it's not now. She doesn't see it as pink because she's looking through a lens that's green. But if you make the lens go away, let's make it come up like the eye doctor does, it's pink. But she wouldn't know that if the lens stayed in front of her. And this is what we do. We see things, we see people, we see circumstances through the lenses that we have in front of us. And sometimes we put these there ourselves. We're self-imposed with a skewed perspective. And all of us come to the table with a skewed perspective. We have some kind of lens we see things through. Even when it comes to reading the Bible, we will read the Bible with some prior knowledge of some sort. You have to. And it would be good for a Bible student to at least acknowledge that they have this perspective. You've heard me enough to know that I believe baptism is necessary for salvation based on my Bible studies. But I still need, when I approach Scripture, if I see something that might, might not jive with that, I need to recognize that I have a skewed perspective from my previous studies, but I still could be wrong. So I need to recognize I'm seeing this through a lens of my previous studies, and I know the baptism's necessary. I need to recognize that so that I can look at this and see what it's saying and see if I might need to rethink those lenses I've put in front of myself. Does that make sense? We approach people with lenses. We Sometimes you, you might have seen this play out, maybe in your own life. Somebody looks like somebody else in, in somebody's history. And that person that's the somebody else that looks like somebody else, well, we don't like them very much. And they remind us of that other person. So this new person we just met, we don't really like them very much because we judge them based on their appearance. It seems like they remind us of some, this other person. This other person was kind of bad, so that's the way we choose to judge people. And sometimes it's a subtle lens. We don't realize we're seeing people this way. 
we don't, we don't really think that much about how our vision is skewed by these lenses that we have. I have a hard time sometimes thinking about um, people that are significantly older than me and what they've seen happen in our world even lately. I'm, I'm grateful. Stephanie's father has dementia, and he's completely unaware of what's really going on in the world. He's not aware of it. And I think maybe that's a blessing, because I think he would be very traumatized by watching the, the decline in this country and world. So I think about senior citizens who still have sharp minds seeing all these changes and wondering how far away from God is everybody going to become, at least in general, in this world. We have these, these lenses in front of us. We see things through these lenses that maybe they're self-imposed. Maybe our parents put them in front of us. Maybe a former preacher, a Sunday school teacher, maybe some of what we've seen on social media. It's a, it's a very crazy thing that you'll see play out. So I'm standing on a stage in front of you in a venue that's not necessarily an acceptable thing for you if you disagree, or any of you, to stand up and just go, I disagree. In the middle of church, if you do that, everybody goes home with kind of a knot in their stomach and wondering if they even want to go back to because that could happen again. I'm not sure if I like that. So we have an atmosphere here that the person who's standing on this stage, if, if this person says something that might not exactly be right, everybody's supposed to kind of just be silent. And in that particular case, silence is approval. But we, we've got the dynamic. Um, and what that looks like in the real world, what if, what if it was a cult leader standing on the stage in the same kind of environment? Everybody just doesn't say anything in disagreement because if that person does, everybody else gets uncomfortable and they want them outside the room. You shouldn't do that. So there's a dynamic here that makes it like whatever I say, people are just kind of supposed to accept. But the Bible teaches, no, you're not. You're supposed to scrutinize and use Scripture to test things. Test it with Scripture, because if you're going to test to see if that's coming from the Spirit of God, the way you're going to know is by what He's inspired by His Spirit to be written. So you check it with this. So there's something to be said about the responsibility of anybody who stands on this stage. But we come with these lenses. We have this idea that things are this way, and that's the way we choose to see them. Sometimes we choose to be negative, sometimes, sometimes we choose to be positive, but people have lenses in front of their eyes. We all do. And we're going to see how these Pharisees and Sadducees, they have a very hard time seeing that the predicted Son of God is right in front of them because they've already imagined what they're expecting. Somebody is going to come in as a political leader and solve all these problems Rome has imposed on them. It's going to, they're going to, he's going to make them go away, and they're going to get theirs. He's going to make our financial troubles go away. He's going to make life easier, and that's not what Jesus came to do. And so when he came, they didn't even see him when he was right in front of them as the Son of God, because their lenses 
were in front of their eyes. Okay, so we'll go on with the text, picking up with verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So let's go ahead and get this out of the way. The footnote you'll see up behind me from the English Standard Version, when it says the Father does, actually it's he. The the Greek word is he. It's not father. But it's difficult for us to stay with the meaning if we don't have father in there. So just so you're aware, in case there's differences in translations, that's why most will put father there instead of he, so that we get it as we read it. But let's look at this very insightful verse. He starts with truly, truly. That word, those words are amen, amen. Can you put that back up there, please, so we can look at it? Thanks. Amen, amen is what that is. Amen, amen. So let it be, so let it be. This is the way it is. That's what he's saying. This is fact. It's a fact. I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord. Why is he talking like this? Because he just equated himself with the father. They all know who the father is. And now he's referring to himself as the unique son. The one mentioned in John 3, 16. You're very familiar with that. So he's claiming to be deity. They're, they're getting very bothered by these claims. And he goes ahead and says, well, this is a fact. This is a fact. The son can do nothing of his own accord. Now think about it. A child. This particular description that Jesus is giving, a son. He can't do anything of his own accord. What do you mean? I mean, I've seen kids run around and do their own thing. But he's trying to give us an analogy that we have seen, but only what he sees the father doing. So he is saying he's doing what he's doing because his father has demonstrated what he's supposed to be doing. He's using an analogy that they understand very well. It used to be in the Jewish tradition, which would be a very good tradition for us to continue today. People ate meals together as families. And the father would instruct the whole family in the intimate setting of a meal. Maybe you've noticed when you have some kind of gathering at your home or someone else's home, sometimes even if the meeting is not in the kitchen, people wind up in the kitchen and they're having those intimate discussions. And you've got some memories wrapped around those kinds of concepts, don't you? And they'll continue to build like that because there's something about eating together. It's an intimate thing. So the the Jewish fathers would teach the families at the table, and they were the authority, the leader. This was their responsibility. So when people would see a son doing something that uh, is is really good, they'd say, well, see, just like his father, or very bad, it's just like his father. They know of this kind of history throughout what they've been taught in the Bible, There's multiple father figures that you can see the sons repeating the same things. David struggled, got got himself into trouble with his sensual desires for a woman. Solomon, his son. David, David demonstrated this behavior and Solomon 
did it too. Remember how many non-believing wives and concubines he had? There was multiple stories like that in the Old Testament. So they're familiar with this. Think about, you just use your brain. You can back up in history and think. Think about a man who's married to a beautiful woman who goes into a different land and says, my sister. What did his son do? Very similar. Anyway, these kinds of things, it's a, it's a learned behavior. A lot of these things that our children do are learned behaviors. If you think about the brilliance of Jesus' statement, we can put this into practice in what we do with the people in our care because we will be held accountable. So a young girl might say, when I grow up, in fact, some of my girls said, I'm going to grow up and marry my dad. That's what they, they didn't understand. You know, they just want to grow up and marry their dad. It's like, he's the ideal. You teach them, no, no, someone like your dad. That's, that's a good thing if your girls grow up and they want to marry somebody just like their father. And some daughters will say that. I'm going to, I'm going to marry somebody just like my father. Some women will say, I'm never going to marry someone like my father. And what's really sick is I've talked to many women who actually said that, but ended up doing it anyway. Or a son might say, I'm going I'm to grow up and be just like my dad. Or he might grow up and say, when I grow up, I'm not going to be anything like my father. See how we influence kids? They, so if you, whatever you do as a father figure or a mother figure, the children are going to be shaped by it. And they will have lenses. They'll see the world through based on your example. And Jesus knows, these people know this, they know it. Little girls will grow up and they'll be thinking, I'm going to grow up and be just like my mother, or I am never going to be anything like my mother. And they might grow up, even if they don't want to be, being just like their mother, having the same attributes they didn't want to have. But the, the adults know this. They know we influence our children. How you raise them will absolutely determine their outcomes. They will choose to either do nothing like your example, or they'll just follow it. And Jesus says to them, I'm just doing what my father has taught me. And you know this is getting under their skin. He's equated himself with the father already, and now he's saying, my father's teaching me to do this. And he goes further. Look at the next verse, verse 20 or 21. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. Did I skip verse 20? Let's not do that. Can someone read verse 20 out loud for me? Read it loud enough for that a microphone can pick it up. show him greater works than these that you may marvel. Ah, don't you love that? So he's done a miracle. They don't like it. They focus on the negative, and he's going to do even more. And the Father has taught him how to do this. So the power that Jesus has, he gives to the Father. And I thank you for reading that and helping me pass over a mistake where I somehow took a slide out. I'm good. I don't know if, you've, if I've ever texted you. You're going to learn. I've got fat-thumbing mad skills. 
I could make errors all over the place, but we got verse 20. So we'll read 21 again. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. They know the stories that God has the power to raise people from the dead. And he says, as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. So he's claiming that he can actually raise the dead. Don't you know this is getting under their skin? But Jesus is doing something more that's flying in under the radar, and most of us miss it. Because, you see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees get together as religious leaders and fight against Jesus. You see it on a regular basis. We're not told these are Pharisees and Sadducees, but we know that's who they are. These are the leaders that are criticizing him. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees, some of us, when we bring this up, we forget. I don't know the difference. The biggest difference, let me help you again. The Sadducees did not believe that there was anything after this life on earth. They didn't believe that there was an eternal life or another life after this one or something after this physical life. See, that's why they were sad, you see. They have no hope for anything beyond this life. That's how you remember that. So when Jesus does this, he's, <laughs> they are acting unified in their attacks on him. And he immediately gets them divided because part of this group that's attacking him doesn't believe in life after death. So now they're divided, which is going to change the dynamic of his attackers. When the attackers are now realizing they are not exactly on the same page, it's hard to keep attacking in a unified manner. So now we'll pick up verse 22 in case I skip that one too. For the Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now, this can really throw a monkey wrench into modern thinking in a lot of modern churches because there's a whole lot of preachers and experts out there that talk about how the Jewish people have a secret back door into heaven. Because see, the rest of us, we all have to live by this. But the Jewish people, you know, they're special, so they're going to get to go to heaven anyway. The Bible does not teach that. In fact, here's a verse that you might want to highlight that explains it quite clearly. If you don't honor the Son, then the Father is not honored. He'll say it even stronger when we get to chapter 14. But you don't get the Father without the Son. And here he's doing something else. As they are nitpicking, they're using their lenses, not even seeing that he really is the Son of God. He really is God in the flesh. They are nitpicking him and they are judging him. And he flips that. The Father's not even going to judge. All judgment is to the Son, which he's saying, it's been given to me. In other words, you judge me, guess who gets to judge in the end? I do. That is a powerful thing. He does it subtly, but I guarantee you these brilliant minds in their day, they're getting it. So he's got them confused a little bit because now they know they're not unified anymore. And then as they're off step just a little bit, he says to them, and by the way, I'm the final judge. The Father made it so. 
even if they can't stand what he's saying, they got to think about it because if that's true, they're in trouble. Because the father that they love, supposedly, is the one who put Jesus in charge of judgment, and he's the one that sent Jesus to them. So he's just saying right in front of them, God's the one who sent me here to tell you all this. (laughs) I don't know if you noticed this, but he's not intimidated and he's not in any way backing off. In fact, look what he does next. We'll pick up a verse 24. You have no idea. I anticipate each time a slide pops up, did I I lose that one too? Truly, truly, he starts with, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So he begins again. Here's, this is fact. This is fact. I say to you, The Father who sent me told me to do this, by the way. I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. So in other words, hear my word and you choose whether or not you believe God. That's powerful. You got to believe him. You will have eternal life. Pharisees are all over this, loving it. Sadducees who don't even believe there is such a thing might have second thoughts right about now because if God really did send him, and gives him the keys to eternal life, well, then your destiny lies in his control. And you're in the middle of judging him. And he's right in front of you telling this, telling you this, and he's very confident. There's something to be said about confidence. It comes across as very, very real. And so when he keeps saying, it's, this is a fact, this is a fact, it feels like a fact. He says he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now, It says, if he believes what the son says, because that's what the father sent him to say, if he believes it, he's got eternal life. There's no death. And you should probably be thinking in your mind, where's baptism in this? Because it doesn't say anything about baptism. It just says believe. Did you catch that? It just says believe. It doesn't say anything about baptism. It doesn't say anything about repenting. It doesn't say anything about living for Jesus It just says, believe. That's all it says. But the one thing we know we can't do is take one verse out of the Bible and just yank it out and say, this just all by itself, this is the verse. Because there's a whole lot of verses that we could yank right out and do it all by itself, and it would be bad. For instance, you all know the story of Abraham, and he was tested in his faith. You know, he didn't even believe he could have a kid. In his old age, he finally was given this kid that he was promised. And now God says, I need you to take him to the mountain and sacrifice him. In other words, kill him on the mountain. The kid that he couldn't have for so many years, now he finally had, now I'm supposed to take him and kill him. And Abraham actually went up to the mountain because he had faith in God. Somehow this is going to work out. Abraham had his own idea, but God did provide a way out when he When Abraham passed the test, he knew that this very valuable child that he loved, he was willing to give to God. It didn't make sense, but he was willing to do what God said. And so God provided a way out, and he didn't have to do it. What if I were to take that one little verse and just say, okay, this verse says, take your child to this mountain and kill him. That's what the Bible says. Here's the verse. Shouldn't I read before 
and after and understand this was specifically for Abraham and not for everybody to go do this? Yes. Or I could take you to Proverbs where Solomon says, I could give you a couple of verses right out of the beginning of Solomon. (laughs) Throw in your lot with us and we'll steal stuff. Yeah. That's what it says. But it starts off in other verses, my son, if sinners entice you and they come to you and say, throw in your lot with us, we'll steal stuff. And he goes on, do not go along with them. The next verse. We can't just pick out verses and just say, this is what it says. So still, it does say, it's a fact, it's a fact. If you believe you've crossed over from death. So how do we deal with that? Let's do, let's do what I was just telling you. Let's read it in context. Let's see. Does he clarify? Let's see. If not, then it's just believe, and that's the end of it. Except for there's other verses that we have to also read in context. But we'll go ahead and look at this one. We'll move on to verse 25, if that slide is there. He continues. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. So he says, it's a fact, it's a fact. The time is coming and is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And you can, you've got scholars all over the place on this. Is he talking about the physically dead? Or is he talking about the people who are dead spiritually? I, you know what? It doesn't really change the meaning. Because in a little bit, he does talk about the, uh, the dead physically. But he's also talking about people who are spiritually dead in the moment because he's speaking to them. <clears throat> but whatever the case, he reiterates that the Son is the final judge. That's good to know. We'll read on, picking up with verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs, there's the dead, will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And the devil is very clever in where he gets our minds going in this. So he does say, he's talking about the dead who are physically dead, hear his voice. And and it says very clearly that resurrection of life, that's eternal life for those who hear his voice and those who, and and the others, judgment. So So we can get caught up in arguing, was he talking only physical or physical and spiritual? We can get caught up in that. But don't miss the context we talked about earlier. Remember when I said there's no baptism mentioned in this. There's no, there's no repenting. There's no live for Jesus. Excuse me. <laughs> Look what it says. Those who have done good to the resurrection, which would strongly <laughs> imply you live for Jesus. Well, who decides what's good and what's bad? But the judge and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So if you live for him, eternal life. But if you don't, judgment. So see, contextually, it 
doesn't leave you hanging. It believe means you believe enough to actually demonstrate your belief, like James chapter 2 says. But I want you to pay attention to some kind of a little thing. It's kind of fun to think about. It's not anything to lose sleep over, but some of you will. What about this? Are the physical bodies going to come back to physical life? Is that what this looks like? Because there's other scriptures that indicate this kind of thing. It's like, is that really what's going to happen on the day of judgment? Or is there going to be physical bodies come back to life? Because remember that happened when Jesus died. People came out of the tombs that were dead and started testifying about Jesus. So maybe maybe physically it's going to happen. But here's where your noodle gets a little twisted is when you start thinking, what about all those people that were in tragic accidents and their bodies weren't exactly intact anymore? What about amputees who've lived a long life and they, where's the rest of their body? What about those who were cremated? How's that work? Or they gave um, parts of their anatomy to science. How's that going to work? Is that skeleton in the science class in high school going to start walking around? I mean, it's kind of weird thinking about all this, but you know what? Don't spend a whole lot of time there because this isn't about that. We're really talking about Jesus as the final judge, and you better listen to him because listening to him is listening to the Father. That's what this is about. And you got to understand, he's the final judge. So that's why you want to live for him because He's the one that weighs everything in the balance when all is said and done. So, that was fun, wasn't it? Let's go to verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, isn't that interesting? Jesus is so consistent in this. I just want to please my Father. That's all. What I say to you is because my Father wants me to say this. It makes him happy. It's his will that you hear what I'm telling you right now. We could do so well to learn to try to be like Jesus. He sets such a good standard right in front of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And as we read it, we can almost see it like a movie. It's like playing out right in front of us. Like, wow, he's good at this. And we continue. Next verse, verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Wow. So he knows that they have gone to John to find out if Jesus is legitimate. And John has testified to them, yep, he's the one. They have given credibility to John the Baptist, and it's so wonderful that that's happened John the Baptist pointed at Jesus. We've already seen this. And Jesus is telling them that he knows. You tried to verify whether or not I was legitimate. You already found out from the person that you trust that I am. He testified to you. And now I'm telling you what he said is true. So these Pharisees and Sadducees, I can't help but think that there are people that are peeling off in their minds. 
Because what Jesus is saying is so compelling. How could they not be pulled toward the light that they see in him? Let's continue with the next verse. Verse 34, not that the testimony that I received is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. In other words, I don't, we don't need, I don't need, he's just the judge, you know, he's the son of God. I don't need man's testimony, but I say this because you do. And if you listen to the testimony you already have, maybe you'll be saved. See, Jesus tells us things sometimes that, if you think about it, what God doesn't need to tell us things. We need him to tell us things. He doesn't need our help. He knows that we need to serve. Does that make sense? Okay, verse 35. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. They know. Yeah, he's talking about John the Baptist. They know that they loved John the Baptist. They were totally into John the Baptist until he said, Jesus is the one. Some of them are discounting John the Baptist, and he knows this. Verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. They've already seen, how can you deny when a man who has had mangled legs and muscles, who couldn't walk for 38 years, is now suddenly walking around, and you're nitpicking that he's carrying his mat, but you can't deny this man has been healed. And what about the wedding in Cana? And, and, and what about the, the father whose son was sick and... and uh, Came to, he came to Jesus, and Jesus said, your son is healed. At a distance, he just spoke the words, and he was healed. These people can't deny the miracles that Jesus is doing. I don't know if you've seen people with their mouths hanging open, but I imagine there's a few of them, after seeing the miracles, and maybe even after giving this speech, because Jesus is making it very painfully clear. He is who he appears to be. Let's look at this next chunk of Scripture. Starting with verse 37, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Ouch! That is powerful. So he is basically telling them that they're not following their own belief system. That is troubling. They are left with their mouths hanging open. And he is saying, my father has testified on my behalf. The one you believe in, the father, you're choosing not to believe. Wow. Moving right along, next passage, next verses in our passage, verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think 
that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He knows they know Scripture. He knows they know the Scripture that talk about Him coming. But they choose to see that it's Him because they've got those lenses in front of them. We'll read on. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Ouch! That's a powerful command. Love God. And he knows they're not doing it. With their mouths hanging open, with, them, with Jesus convicting some of them that are on the peripherals, they're starting to believe, at least some, maybe not all, and probably not many, but some, he's convicting even further. Wow. This is crazy. And the glory doesn't come from people, even though people are saying, did you see the miracle he did? The glory comes from the Father, because he's the one that gives the power to do the miracles to the Son. Next verse. Verse 43, I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. <laughs> That's convicting. So when people come and they build up themselves, they'll receive him. But they won't receive Jesus, who's building up the Father and coming in his name. Next verse. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Ouch! They build each other up, but they, and they'll take glory from each other, but they don't seek the glory that comes from God. And he says, that's what I'm doing. And he glorifies me. Verse 45 continues, and we'll read the rest of chapter 5. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Wow. He knows because Moses is credited with writing the first five books, which is the law. It's, they're, they're really dedicated. If there's any section of the Old Testament they're dedicated to, it's that. They learn this from childhood on. This becomes an everyday type of thing with them. This is, this is their bread and butter for life. They know Moses. They, they love Moses. And he says to them, Moses wrote about me. And since you choose not to believe, it is Moses that accuses you of your wrongdoing. You have the word of God. You have the word of God that was delivered through Moses, and Moses talked of me. And you think about it, it's a wonderful story, because Moses was the deliverer of, of all these years, 400 years of being slaves, and yet there was another deliverer 
that's going to come that's greater than Moses. And they don't even see it because it's right in front of them. Back to that analogy where you've got the silhouette, you've got the uh, woman's head, and you can see the lens drop down in front of her eyes, and you see that her perspective is all green because she's got a green lens. You see the pink ball come into play, but she doesn't know it's pink because of her perspective. And the Pharisees have the Son of God right in front of them. He's communicating to them. He's given them the truth. He's demonstrated who he is. They don't see it. They don't see him for who he is because they've got the lenses in front of them. But if the lens could be lifted, like on the silhouette behind me, you'll see the perspective changes. She can see that the ball was pink. It looked green all along. They, if they could just raise their lenses, the skewed judgment that they have, they were expecting something else, but the Son of God is right in front of them. They wanted something else, somebody that's going to come and make life easier. It's going to take all the pain away, take all the problems away. That's not why Jesus came. Don't expect that. Just because you accept Jesus and you're going to live for him doesn't mean life's going to be all rosy. It's all going to be perfect. No, that's heaven. We don't get heaven here. Heaven's later. You live for Jesus, heaven's for those people. But in our skewed judgment, sometimes we, we think, why are these bad things happening? It's not supposed to be like this. It's not supposed to, I'm not supposed to be miserable. I'm not supposed to be going through this, and I'm not supposed to be going through this. Come, why, God? You, God didn't promise you that it was all going to be all great. Get that lens out of your eyes. That's, that's not what he promised. Jesus didn't come to make everything better here on earth. If, if heaven was going to be here on earth, why would we long for something else? Everything, if everything was great, why would we long for something else? That's what I tell people when they start telling me the, about these different struggles they're going through. Makes you long for heaven, doesn't it? Live for Jesus. He's right in front of them and he's telling them this. But you know what they're doing? They're pointing their finger. You see the analogy behind me of the fingers pointing. That's what they're doing. Pointing at Jesus. They're used to this. They've been pointing at other people. Remember? Who told you to pick up your mat and walk? You're not supposed to be picking up your mat and walk. That's what they do. It's what happens when you get overly religious. Instead of being real with the Father. And so they're pointing their fingers and... You all know the proverbial thing. It came to mind earlier. You know, when you got one finger pointed, you got three pointed back at you. There they are, right in the analogy. You can see on the screen. See, the problem is we're too busy trying to fix everybody else when we actually need to work on ourselves. We want to change the world before we change. You can't, you can't do that. You, you have no right to go trying to help people with these particular problems that you haven't figured out in your own life. You wonder why our world's so confused? We've got people that don't have things figured out teaching everybody else what they're supposed to be doing. In Jesus' day, this was the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And Jesus is standing right before them, and he's given them the truth. And Jesus has stood right in front of you, and he's given you the truth in your word. You know in your Bible this is the truth. 
And maybe you're expecting something else. Maybe you've got some lenses in front of you and you were thinking it was just going to be so easy, you know, that decision you have to make. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Can you not just send me a text or an email? I need to make it simple, come on. No, no, he wants you to work through it. He wants you to pray. He wants you to serve him and wait for the answer. It's not so easy. Get those lenses away from your eyes and look at things in the way Jesus wants you to look at things. Quit trying to point your finger at everybody else because Jesus is trying to get your attention. Let's pray. God, thank you so much, Lord. So many times when we look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees, we, we look at them and think, oh, how could they think like that? How could they not notice what you were trying to teach them through your son who was standing right in front of them? And then, Lord, there we are pointing our fingers at them. And sometimes we behave just like them. Sometimes we get too worried about trying to fix other people and we don't think about how you're trying to get our attention. Lord, this morning, as we've opened up your word, it's grabbed our attention. And we willingly and openly give it to you. What would you have us do, Lord? Show us. We want to know. We want to bring glory and honor to you by what we do. So help us. In Jesus' name, amen.